This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, today on Dreamland, we have we have a very interesting guest, indeed. I have read his book, Out of Time, and uh, this is going to be one of the best shows about abduction I think that we've ever done. I really do. Steve Aspen has been a businessman most of his life. He's now, I hope, pleasantly retired, and uh, but not retired from this because this is the close encounter and abduction experiences are not something you retire from. In fact, I'm going to ask him later what he thinks does happen to us when we die, because I'm wondering about that myself. Uh, I wouldn't call either of us an out-and-out codger, but we're definitely older guys, so we want to know. Welcome to Dreamland, Steve. It's really a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Whitley. It's great to be here and finally uh, finally get together with you. Yeah, and a wonderful, articulate book out of time the intergenerational abduction program explored Mm -hmm. and you know we go deep into a lot of subjects in this show but we go real deep into abduction because this is our lives the lives of many of the people who watch and listen and you know in fact if you look at the numbers my numbers are fairly small in 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 uh in comparison to some shows lex friedman for example a general science show with a sort of edge to it gets hundreds of thousands of viewers or people who who do the do straight ufo get hundreds of thousands of viewers in a good week i might get sixty thousand viewers or and listeners and the reason is this most people figure Oh, abductions, that'll never happen to me. I don't need to know about that. I'm curious about the UFOs. I'm curious about the edge of science. I'm not curious about that. Or maybe there's something deeper. If I get interested in it, will it come to me? Will I attract it? How do you think it happened to come into your life? And when did it first start? <clears throat> I think it's um, when I was about nine years old, um, when these nighttime incidents had been already happening to me uh, every few weeks for many, many years, I asked one of the abductors because you can ask them and they communicate telepathically straight into your mind and you always know which one of them is talking to you because it's a really distinctive, each one of them has a a distinctive voice. And I asked them, why me? Why are you doing this to me? Why am I going through this? What's what, what is it about me that gets me in this situation? And he said, Oh, it's because of your mother and your grandmother and your great grandmother. That's the line. And you're, and you're next in the line. That's why you're here. And I had no idea of what to make of this information for next 35 years. I didn't um, think this phenomenon was anything to do with uh, flying saucers or with alien life forms or with life outside the planet. I had absolutely no concept that it was anything to do with that. I just thought it was something... um, to do with the fairy world, to do with uh, the folk tales, to do with um, these kind of uh, family origin things, that this weird stuff, you know. So the, you had you had the occult and fairy folk and so forth in your family life before. Yeah, in a small way. My mother was um, became later, not when I was nine years old, but much later in her life, she became a spiritual healer. But she was always interested in. Um, and spiritualism and she belonged to the spiritual association of great Britain, spiritualist association of great britain which is based in london and she'd already always read books on the subject and she was you know fairly steeped in it um my father on the other hand has absolutely no interest in that side of life at all um but my mother did and my grandmother kind of did but she was <clears throat> my grandmother my maternal grandmother was um 
a simple woman, really. She was from a Yorkshire farming background and she had only education up to age 14 when she left school and she had no higher education and she very rarely read stuff and she had lived a really kind of simple life. Um, this was not the age when mass communications of, other than the radio existed. Yes. So you had very little exposure to anything outside your local community. So um, she also believed in fairies and believed in the natural world, but she didn't make a great deal of it. She just had it. She just accepted it as part of um, the Did folk. she ever tell you about anything she might have witnessed or experienced? <clears throat> um, I asked her, after, for, shortly following this thing, this interaction I had with these abductors, I asked her a, a few months later, um, out the, uh, it's very difficult to start a conversation like this with your grandmother, but yeah, I just said, what, what about, I, you know, I kind of frame, I can't even remember the, the framework I put on it, but yeah. I just asked this, these things happen to me at night and I feel paralyzed and these, these things are around me, these people. And she said, oh, they're the pixies, Steve. Uh, that Stevie, they're just the pixies. Don't worry, they'll, um, uh, they'll always bring you back and they won't harm you. And that was it. That was her. Uh, that's a you know a paradigm for this uh, ex experience that was happening to her. I think probably <clears throat> she thought that um, it happened to everybody or a lot of people, and all you needed to do was wait until a child asked you about it, and ex then explain to the child that it was basically okay. You know, they wouldn't harm you, or they wouldn't. Um, they all always return you home because she thought they were they they took her away and brought her back again. You know, okay. So uh, that was one combat. That was that one single conversation I had with her, and she died the following year. And I didn't see her very often because we lived a couple of hundred miles away, which in those days uh, was you know, well, a distance to travel. We're going to take a <coughs> break for free Dreamlanders, and when we come back, I'm going to ask Steve why he asked his grandmother that question. And I think we're gonna get a very interesting answer. We'll be right back. Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka, author of American Cosmic says, leads the way and it's best that we listen because the stakes have never been higher. EarthTech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable, Leslie Kane author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record, says groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says searing and masterful. Them, a new vision and a new way of looking at close encounter. You have never read anything like them before. It is the beginning of a new way of looking at our own future. We're talking to Steve Aspen, his new book, Out of Time. It goes way beyond its the normal abduction description and, and goes deeply into the meaning and experience of this in, in ways that I don't see many books doing. Its subtitle is The Intergenerational Abduction Program Explored. And before we left the air, 
we're talking about his grandmother's belief in the pixies and the fairies. And it was an old time belief. It wasn't like a, it was, this was a long time ago. And she saw them as they were seen, which was very much as we see the visitors now, the little gray people. Uh, and when he was taken as a little boy, he asked her what to think of it. And she said, oh, it's, it's them and they'll always bring you back. Don't worry about it. And so let's do this. Let's, let me ask you now to describe for us the experiences that you were having that you took to her with that question. Yeah. So from when I was about five, certainly six or seven, I had um, um, a lot of experiences at night, which basically involved feeling paralyzed and having something in, um, something close to me and being unable to move. And um, they sometimes talk to you about, could, could you not normally remember the dialogue? And the, it was, it was um, they manipulated me and lay me on my back. And I, I was felt a bit dizzy sometimes because they, they, we obviously went through um, uh, when, when they moved me, I, I, I thought they were probably moving me and I had no control over anything. I, it's very, I, I didn't have a lot of framework to understand this. And then <clears throat> it was gone and I, I sort of woke up and it, everything was normal again. And the, the morning I remembered the, this experience, it was, it was like being transported and transfixed and being controlled by somebody else. And I, it these experiences happened about every few weeks, uh, certainly from age seven, and I think prior to that as well, because I, I, I remember we, we'd move around the country a little bit, so I remember the different bedrooms I had and experiences in the different places. And um, I, for a while, when I was about nine or ten, I had a terror of um, being in the dark. So we had to leave the hall light on and um, my parents consented to do that. And it didn't really help because I, 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 I had a phobia about little snakes in the bed, grabbing hold of my ankles and, and wrists, but really my feet, most of all. And I think this was probably a subliminal memory of the fingers of the little greys, which I, I interpreted as little snakes because they were, they're quite thin. And I was scared of snakes in the bed and all sorts of stuff. And um, I didn't really sleep very well for a long time until um, it, it receded, this receded. So the, that's the framework of the, the, the basic um, uh, background to my asking this uh, abductor why they were doing this to me because I had a feeling that not maybe not everybody went through this and uh, he replied it was because of your mother your grandmother and your great-grandmother and uh, he had his back to me at the time I do remember that and uh, and he says oh it's because of your mother and your, your grandmother your great excuse me your great-grandmother and um, I asked my grandmother about this, as, as I mentioned before, I asked my grandmother about this um, in 1967. It's uh, about a year after this happened, or a few months after this happened. And she died in 1968. So we only had one conversation about it. And I never really approached my mother about this issue, this specific issue. Um, but that's another story. Oh, I've lost your sound. I've lost your sound somehow. Okay, that was my fault for once. For once. I'm so glad. <coughs> I've got a cough and I put on my cough button and forgot to take it off. So let's let's keep going though. We're not we're gonna leave this in. This is just there's no reason to take this out. 
So this was when you were a little child and the symptom it, that you described to me would have been a doctor would have put down to hypnagogia. In other words, a sleep paralysis event, but something else was going on. And tell us when you began to realize that there was somebody there. When, when there was somebody with you, in other words, when you realized there were people, beings involved, and you began to see them. Now I can't hear you. Oh, phooey. Willie, can, can you hear me? Yeah, I can't hear you. I'm sorry, I, I turned the mic off. It's my, 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 I've got what a cough What are we doing? Here. We're both turning our mics <laughs> off without realizing it. How strange. Uh, the Greys are funny jokers. They're here, all right. Indeed. Convincing us to do this, make fools of yeah. ourselves. It's it's very difficult to, to answer your question um, with any detail. This is a long time ago because I'm, I'm in my 60s now, and this is we're, we're talking about what happened when I was a child, below 10 years old. But there were certain, um, certain things really stand out or, or f stood out from that time. I had an absolutely terror, uh, absolute terror of medical procedures and particularly of, of injections because this was when um, diseases like whooping cough and measles and all those kind of childhood illnesses were rampant in the population. And some of the vaccinations and polio was, was, uh, had been a thing. Another one kid in my class had had polio and had uh, calipers fitted to his legs as a consequence. So we had a lot of inoculations at that time because they, they, that was the start of the, um, you know, medicine has advanced at such a stage that, that these vaccinations had become effective and approved. And I, so I had to have a lot of childhood inoculations because smallpox was still a thing in the world, although it didn't exist in Europe, but it was still a thing in the world until 1978, I think. Um, so I had to have a lot of injections and I was absolute terror of, uh, of being injected and um, subject to medical procedures. I, I unreasonably so. I mean, most kids didn't have that reaction. They just looked the other way and, uh, you know. Yeah, I understand. So that was yeah. an indication that you were under <laughs> under some unusual stress that had been involving yes. uh, involving uh, penetrations into your body that you couldn't control. It certainly looks like it, yeah. 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 Yeah, I was, um, I grew up at the same time and um, lived through the polio epidemics in, the, in, in which were terrible in South Texas. My parents used to pack myself and my sister off to the country uh, when polio hit San Antonio, but she got it anyway, fortunately not badly. But we had friends who died of polio, quite a few. So mm. when you know, I, I'm not an anti-vaxxer basically for that reason, because when that polio vaccine came out, my summers were suddenly free and fun again. And mm. uh, it was a huge thing in our lives. Yeah. And, you know, I've always been comfortable with vaccines ever since. So, but I mean, as we grew up later, <laughs> they didn't have that experience. So, mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're less comfortable with vaccines. But, but as, a as a child, um, these inoculations were just um, becoming available and medically approved. And yeah, exactly the same here. So we all had them, you know, and I had actually had measles and rubella and all, all those diseases as a child. Uh, and chicken pox and everything, um, because those the, the uh, inoculations against those things were, didn't exist at the time. But we had smallpox vaccinations, polio vaccinations, and, and a number of other things, you know, scarlet fever and so forth. And I was absolutely terrified every time I had to go and have one, you know. And it was unusual, you know, uh, at the time. I was told it was relatively, I wasn't a very well-behaved boy, you know, to make such a fuss about it. <laughs> yeah, I was I was a bad boy. I was very mischievous, uh, but I was very well behaved in the doctor's office. So that's the difference there. In any case, sort of comparing notes, when did you when did you become conscious of the fact that the Greys were the Greys? And we're going to go a little bit farther forward in your life at this. Yeah, point. I think um, there was. There's two things, really. The first thing is I read Communion in 1987. You probably uh -oh. remember. 
you probably remember the launch of the book was a really big thing. I mean, you, you had a very effective publishing company and um, yes. you turned up on TV on, uh, on the, the primetime chat show circuits in England and in Ireland and, and these places. I and, and your book, um, the cover art by, by is it Tess, uh, Seth Ted Jacobs? Ted, Seth, Ted Jacobs. Seth Jacobs, yes. Yeah. Um, there's something about that, that, that visceral image that went in, right into the heart of Seth. That's, that's there the one. she is. Yeah. And it's a she. Yeah. Well, that's what I call her. I don't know if they even have sex. I uh, don't. Yeah, that's another subject. I think they seem to have gender, but they don't have any sex organs or secondary sexual characteristics or reproductive uh, abilities. Well, I met one that they, surely did. Really? Oh God, yes. A but, gray alien. Apparently. Well, yeah. I never, I never did. So, but they, they, they do. Um, they, they. You can differentiate them apart when they, when they speak to you. So. And nearly all abductees say this. Uh, the, those who recover some memories, they say the the large, the taller kind in particular, definitely a male or female. So, um, but that that image, when he, the communion was published in the UK, and it turned up in all the bookshops in in a big full window display all over the place, and. You, everybody was talking, either reading it or talking about it. I don't know what your sales in the UK were uh, when the book was launched, but I, virtually everybody I knew seemed to be reading it. And that um, image was something which was so powerful and so disturbing. It had it, it was it was disturbing in a way that only something very close to reality can be. Especially Rather if you've got it buried under your. Yeah, in your subconscious. Yes, exactly. Um, if you if you um, monsters that are made up for horror films and sci-fi sci-fi films don't, work. don't have the visceral power of this because this is a real. Well, this was this was this image was first contact. It was the first contact between human beings and these other beings, mm -hmm. and the image was intended. And I certainly didn't know this at the time. To wake people up to their own memories and to realize that this had happened to me that it wasn't a dream hmm. and i guess that's it did. it's a it's an amazing piece of work i mean the yeah. first one I, th I think in the public domain anywhere and it was such a big deal uh communion so i came across communion um in 1987 at the time or shortly after publication and i saw you on the chat show circuits uh, in the uk um, we had very little to do with, um, you know, uh, popular culture in the United States, even though we've got a lot of uh, TV shows and so forth. But this was so strong. And I, I, I just knew, part of me just knew that this was a real thing. This was really happening to people. And it, 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 it was partly it was it's you were so convincing when you talked about it. Because it happened to me, and I, you know, I'm You're not a really liar. Convincing. Absolutely. Um, it was extremely courageous to do that, Willie, because I think you laid yourself open to a lot of uh, debunkers and cynics and so forth. And oh, it was you horrible. Just, it just ran off, you know, it just, you just slogged through it and held your ground. And it was very impressive. And oh, thank you. That, I did hold my ground. I'm, I'm, I'm a good debater. I debated in high school and college very successfully, and it stood well it. when I was getting I to these, getting having these people thrown at me who were um, generally really unable to make or sustain the case they were trying to make. Mm. In 2007, which was. Um, to 20 years after your book was published, I'd seen a, a few um, things about alien abduction on the Discovery Channel late at night and so forth on, on cable TV. And uh, I'd come across odd things about it, but I, I never really took a, a deep interest in it. Although, although I did see something on TV about bodily scarring. And although I wasn't aware that I had any bodily scarring at, the t at that time, I 
what saw the photographs and the images of people um, who'd had uh, scoop mark scars and cuts on on, on their skin, uh, ab alleged abductees, and I just knew that this was a thing, and I was really relieved that it was nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted, didn't want it to be anything to do with me. Um, but then in 2007, I was on a business trip to Sardinia to visit a, 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 a manufacturer of medical devices um, in um, uh, Iglesias, which is a town in the south of Sardinia. And we drove up, um, my, I took my girlfriend with me for, for a trip. We drove up to Bosa on the northwest coast of uh, Sardinia. And we got there at midnight and um, something happened overnight. I, I woke up at 7.30 in the morning. We'd agreed to wake up at 7 in order to go and have breakfast and take my colleague, the third member of the party, who had a flight back to Amsterdam because he was, he was a Dutch guy who lived in Holland and he was a business partner of mine. And um, we'd agree to get up at seven and just meet downstairs and have a bite to eat and drive into the airport. Half past seven, I woke up um, with my, the bedclothes underneath me. So I was lying on top of the bedclothes and I was sitting semi-upright and the lady I was with was fast asleep on her side, underneath the bedclothes beside me. And um, in the room were two grey aliens in the flesh, in the room. And, and between, you were wide awake at this point. I was wide awake. And the, between them both was my father. Now, a lot of people... Um, uh, talk about the, the fact that abductees sometimes see their dead relatives during abductions. Yes. I personally think that it's likely that uh, the abductors can create these images and put them in your mind. And it's absolutely viscerally, viscerally real. I mean, this was my father standing between these two gray aliens, but he, he, he died three years earlier and he, he was smiling and in full Technicolor and, and he just said, it's time to go, Steve, which is what later I discovered the aliens always say to you, just as they're, you know, saying goodbye to you, it's time to go. And so they just faded out and disappeared. One of these aliens had um, something in its right hand, and it looked like a very elongated letter H thing about a meter long, which is almost as, as long as he was. And uh, the other one didn't seem to have anything in his hands. And um, my dad was between them. Now, I think that the, what my father, the image of my father was, was a grey alien projecting that in front of him and making me see my father, which was a, uh, for some reason they do this sometimes, to reassure or um, uh, reassure abductees or put them at their ease or, or whatever. And maybe maybe they didn't mean me to wake up quite so early, quite so quickly. I don't, I don't really know how this works. But they were gone. And I put this down to um, an, a, a, an encounter with my dad in the afterlife for next year or so. And it always bothered me what those weird creatures were. They looked like that, those creatures on the, on the cover of that Whitley Strieber book. And, what were they doing? What were they doing? If, if my dad was in heaven or whatever, you know, in, on the other side, the other, the other world, what were they doing there? Were these creatures also there? I couldn't make any sense of it. And, I came to realize eventually, after a year or two, that the gray aliens were the real thing, and the image of my father was created by them to and put it put in my mind. So that's we're, the first time the first time I, I saw the the greys in full consciousness and had an absolutely full memory of it. Uh, and then you had to go down and be with your friends, your friends. Yeah. 
what we'll do you talk say? about that in just a moment. <laughs> we'll, be right, we'll be right back with Steve Aspen, his new book, Out of Time. UnknownCountry.com subscribers have access to a vast treasury of information. Listen to what Dr. Robert Schock said. He's an expert on the past, and for that reason, he also knows a great deal about the future. We are re-entering, as you say, a debris field, and when you have a debris field like this, it enters the solar system, it energizes the solar system as you have things um, going into the sun, even clouds of dust particles, for instance, it will energize the sun, it will destabilize the sun. This is what we saw at the end of the last ice age in approximate terms about 13,000 years ago. And just in the past few days, more enormous meteors have been sighted and this goes on continuously, more and more every year. We live in a time of great change in a world that doesn't like to look at things as they are. UnknownCountry.com offers extraordinary information, a vast archive that you cannot find anywhere else. Subscribe today. Help keep this website going because without you, there is and can be no us. Go to unknowncountry.com right now, click on the subscribe tab, get started. Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 19. 69. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka, author of American Cosmic, says, leads the way and it's best that we listen because the stakes have never been higher. EarthTech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record, says, groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, searing and masterful. Them, a new vision and a new way of looking at close encounter. You have never read anything like them before. It is the beginning of a new way of looking at our own future. We're talking to Steve Aspen, his new book, Out of Time, The Intergenerational Abduction Program Explored. And Steve, let's talk a little bit about physical evidence at this point. Uh, and what physical evidence are you aware of existing? Well, you know, we both know about the implants. I wear one, I wear one in my ear, uh, so they're, they're there, but generally just completely discounted, if not derided, by general society. But what are the important uh, physical pieces of physical evidence you can point to? It was important to me writing the, this book that um, I bring enough hard scientific medical and scientific evidence to the, um, to the table to place in front of people who were curious, maybe a little bit curious about the abduction issue, but had never really got any exposure to it, uh, apart from a few, you know, schlock uh, late night programs on television, and they'd never read anything about it. So um, 
searching searching for that readership i the curious maybe semi-serious maybe scientifically educated readership i wanted to place as much uh, forensic and scientific evidence on the table as possible and i i've got um basically four or five areas that i go into in in uh, chapter four of the book which is 20 odd pages and most of the appendices of the book are taken up with these <clears throat> there's um first of all there um are scars on the body and um <clears throat> one of the th one of the, th the things that happens to abductees is they they find little scoop marks like little ice cream tiny little ice cream cones um, that have scooped out a bit of flesh on 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 the soft tissue usually on the back of the shoulders or on the back of the thighs or some place that the abductee is not going to see them readily because you don't really look on the back of your shoulders that much um and sometimes long straight scars up to 12 inches in length usually not that that long but some of them are are that long and I've, I've seen these on on people as well. Um, the, 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 there's a story about how I eventually met with Bud Hopkins, who I actually wanted to meet from 2007. You'd obviously met him uh, 20 odd years earlier um, when you went to him to uh, talk about your, you know, your 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 experiences in, in the early 80s. Um, or mid eighties. Um, I tried to reach Bud through email and messaging and, and various channels, but I, he never responded because he was quite sick in uh, two thousand and seven, in two thousand and eight, with uh, two different types of cancer. And I'd I tried to link up with him a couple of times, and I'd even gone to a MUFON conference in Atlantic City in the United States, flew over to America just to go to that, just for just because he was on the on the bill as a speaker. I hope to talk to him. But unfortunately, he didn't go because of illness. Uh, but I did meet Peter Robbins at that conference. And we exchanged contact details and went out to dinner a couple of times. And when in August 2008, my wife, who's she's now my wife she wasn't my wife then we, we, we weren't married but we, we'd been together for a year or so um i got out of the shower one day and she she's ex she screeched and, and exclaimed and said steve that thing in the back of your shoulder it's one of those scoop marks i have i've seen those photographs of those in books about alien abductions and uh you've got one and she photographed them and we sent the photographs to a couple of people she knew in the united states people like stephen bassett and and so forth and one of them people we sent them to was peter robbins peter had all had worked with bud hopkins in the intruders foundation for many many years and he knew him quite well and um he showed these scoop mark uh, photographs of my scoop mark scars to bud hopkins and Bud had was at the time um, the subject of a of a of, of a documentary film being made by Breakthrough Films, and um, which was also based in Lower Manhattan uh, on the Lower West Side, and they were looking for some fresh scoop mark scars that had never been in the public domain before, that they could finance um, and film being biopsied and being analyzed and that they, they could film the dermatolo uh, dermatological uh, a lab uh, talking about it on camera. So Bud Hopkins, uh, out of the blue in September 2008, he phoned me up one evening when I was at home in, in my Hertfordshire home for home. And um, within three months, we'd gone to the United States and met up with him. So we, we arrived at JFK airports to, to be greeted by um, a film crew and sound crew and, and, and we were recorded, uh, you know, greeting everybody and getting into the taxi and so forth. And, and they filmed, um, I was interviewed by uh, Ricky Stern, who is one of the co-directors co of Breakthrough Films. And we spent a week uh, staying in Bud's apartment and on 
uh, the 11th of December, I was taken in a taxi to uh, a dermatological clinic on the Upper West Side with a biopsy, this scoop mark scar. And um, they got the lab report back after a few days and the verdict was it was, it was a dermatofibrona, which is something that you get from a really large aggressive insect bite or that, that permanently, excuse me, permanently damages the skin and it makes a permanent scar. The dermatologist said that he'd never seen one this big ever. And he'd never seen a patient who didn't know how he got it, who didn't remember being bitten by anything. And it was, but it has a medical diagnosis. And I put photographs of this scar in the book, in, the pen, um, in one of these appendices. And um, the lab report is in Appendix A. So that's was, it's a hard piece of evidence, which a lot of abductees find these things or they're found, they're discovered on, on, on a lot of alien abductees. So they're definitely a thing. And um, also um, th there's, a, there's a whole story of the hair. I don't know whether we, we have time to go into that. Do we? Um, we, I was... Um, I had an abduction in 2015 in uh, late in the evening uh, in downstairs in my living room in the lounge and um, where two entities entered through the French windows, the glass doors. And uh, the next, I, I kind of very... Uh, I, I was knocked out instantly and I woke up about half past one in the morning feeling very irritable and strange and went to bed because my wife was already in bed. She slept a bit earlier than I did. I did. And um, uh, the next day she found a hair uh, this long. I'm a, is this in camera? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. About ten, about ten, eleven inches long on the the carpet, uh, on the rug under the dining table, and she found a hair in on the patio outside the back door, which is amazing that she found it because it's it's something I probably wouldn't have seen. She just had a had a, an intuition as to where to look, and these two hairs were very light coloured, blonde or colourless. And she was a she's a red haired Irish woman, and I've uh, obviously got white hair now. But you know, fifteen years ago, not so much. And um, oh, sorry, it was it, seven years ago. And my hair has always been quite short for certainly for the last seven years. So we'd had no visitors for a week or two to the house. Uh, we both worked in the same business. My uh, business I started um, in 19, 1989. And um, we'd had no visitors at the house. So these hairs were a bit of a mystery. And the, because they coincided with this experience, which I relate in the book um, in chapter four, we put them in a sealed bag, like a freezer, little freezer bag. And she hid them somewhere where I wouldn't know where they were. And- um, Why did you do that? I'm curious. Yeah, she thinks that these entities can you can read your mind and find out find out about these things and find out that he make you throw it. things out. Yeah, that's happened it, to me. Yes. So I think it is true. Yes. Yeah, she did. She said, if I hide them somewhere and they, yeah, I never tell you where they are, they won't find them, and they never they never did. Um, it was a few months after this that we finally tracked down a forensic lab in um, in Illinois called is it um microtrace llc microtrace analyzed these two hairs and they, they analyzed another hair from a different abductee uh in california actually she was in california and the the, the this forensic analysis is also in the book in all its detail and long and short of it is all these hairs that were recovered from abduction events are from wigs they're from manufactured wigs. The two hairs that came from my house in England 
were natural human hairs, but they were treated and dyed in a way um, th that wig hair is dyed. And the one, the hair from the abductee in California was a polypropylene hair from an inexpensive costume wig. So whoever they came from uh, was wearing a wig in each case. And I give uh, the, the full breakdown of the, of the analysis of these hairs is in uh, Appendix C. The most uh, remarkable thing is the implants. You mentioned you have an implant on one ear? Yeah, here. Yeah, I use yeah. the implant. My implant is a <clears throat> become an essential tool in my work. Okay. So, but my listeners already know about my implant, so we're not, we're not going to talk about my implant. Let's go on <laughs> and see what you say. Well, um, they... Um, I actually coughed one out uh, in last 12 months ago, and I'm pretty sure it was it was right up here in the um, um, the cribriform the cribriform place, which which is which is part of the brain where the olfactory nerve goes into the into the brain from the nose, and that I think it was there because. I felt this thing loose at the top of my uh, my nose, and I I I've been sneezing quite a bit because I had a fairly heavy cold, and I just snorted something down, and just like like you know, if you have a respiratory infection, you can do that sometimes. Within about a minute, I just went <coughs> very gentle cough, and it coughed this thing out into the wash basin, and it was a blood clot with this little uh, thing in the middle, like like a little. Um, a grain of wheat or something in the middle, really hard little thing. And I had, I had this obsessive desire to get rid of it, maybe because I, ra I rationalized it that if my wife sees I'm coughing up blood, she'll worry, you know, she'll panic, she'll have me down the emergency department. And I didn't think it was probably anything to be too concerned about when it just happened once because it never happened previously. So I washed it down the wash basin and we have a septic tank here in the garden. So that's where it ended up. Um, and it only occurred to me the next day or the day after that that it might have been an implant because it was surrounded by a blood clot and it was it came from up here. And I felt completely different after it was gone for some reason. I really felt a lot more energetic and, and a lot more relaxed about a lot of things. And I wrote a, a message to Robert Hastings and Bob Jacobs, the guys, uh, you know, the... the you, your um, your audience will will know who these guys are. Oh right? yeah, I think um, uh, uh, Bob has been on the show, as I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Oh, he's a, he's had some amazing experiences. Bob yeah, Jay. or he will yeah. be on. I think uh, Jeremy Bainey may, may be interviewing Bob shortly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. So I wrote a message to to them explaining what had happened. Um that I thought it was an implant and we I actually washed it down the wash basin. It's a, it's a, it's a damn shame, you know, because I, we couldn't analyze it anymore. But I, I do um, put a long 40-page analysis of, of, a, of a, an implant uh, in one of the appendices. And have you ever interviewed Steve Colburn or Stephen, Steve Colburn? No? Yeah, I know Steve. You do? Um, He's been on he, the show, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So you know him well, and you, your um, your audience may know him too. And he he gave a very detailed, sophisticated materials analysis of one of these implants that had been removed by Roger Lear and um, Dr. Mastriano uh, from a from a patient that that they were dealing with. And um, this implant is also uh, discussed in the book. In, in, uh, and the, you know they're amazing. I, have you ever done a, um, a program on implants? Just on implants? No, I haven't. Yeah. I, I did have Roger on the show many times, and fantastic. I so, worked with uh, William Mallow at Southwest Research to study quite a few implants. Oh well, you, so you you've got more exposure to the the, the thing than I have. Yeah, the thing that's so frustrating about it is. There can it can never rise to a proper level of finish in the science scientific community mm. because it is there is such a difficulty they have such a difficulty emotionally accepting this idea 
that that somebody who is more knowledgeable than them might be here and might not be addressing them. Interesting. And it's, it's Interesting perspective. Yeah. Very difficult for them. Yeah. I, I I know many people in the sciences quite well who are, some of them even are very clandestine about their abduction experiences, but they just can't handle it. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame them. I mean, this is understanding the nature of reality is their bread and butter. And here comes somebody who apparently has a much larger scale understanding and can implement it in all kinds of bizarre technological and super technological ways. And they won't talk to them. Yeah. And of course, they're resistant and, and, and unwilling. Yeah. Interesting. That um, these this implants um, and a number of others that, that Roger looked at and had, had um, analyzed, they are basically they have shells of uh, con composed of composed of three biological materials: um, hemocyderin, uh, protein coagulum, and keratin. Keratin is um, the substance, the essential substance of hair and nails as you know and um it only you only ever find keratin really close to the sink skin right yeah and uh protein coagulum uh is a in tissue respiration and uh hemocyderin is uh an agent in the blood that uh works at the body's throm thrombocytes to in induce clotting and the these three materials are woven together in the shells of these uh, um little implants and devices and i suspect but cannot prove that they are taken from the individual abductee or are engineered from the the uh, genetic code of the well, they, they have to be abductee. because otherwise they would be rejected by the body. Yeah. There's no the scoop yeah. mark is taking the, that material, then yeah. they then they enclose the implant in it and put it in elsewhere. That's how yeah. it works. Fan fantastic. They're they're um they're um they're completely biocompatible bio with the body and there there's no inflammatory response from the body to these implants that's, and um, that, and that's the reason yes and yeah, absolutely yeah um the, uh, and, we have to we have to take a brief brief break uh, because it's come to the end of the free part of the show uh and um so my free listeners i wish you all the best and hope you do subscribe eventually uh, so, and I'd like to thank you as always for being with us. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.